0: Disrupting Japan, Episode 13 Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today we sit down and talk with Casey Wall of Redbrick Ventures and several other companies. Now, Casey's just written a book on Japanese startups and Japanese startup founders. And last year, when he told me about it, he wondered if he and I were somehow competitors but we're not. Right now, there's so little understanding of the Japanese startup ecosystem and so little overseas exposure of truly innovative businesses in Japan that the more people talking, writing, and podcasting about it, the better. In the immortal words of Arlo Guthrie, if three people do it, then it's a movement. Now, in the interview, we talk about two things that may require a bit of clarification for our overseas and particularly our U.S. audience. First and simplest, we mentioned Hayashi-san a number of times. Now, Hayashi-san is the founder of Digital Garage, which is one of the most successful Internet companies here in Japan. And the second is Rocket Internet, uh, which is very well known in Asia, but not so much in the U.S., So Rocket is a German company that clones successful U.S. startup models and deploys them in Europe, Latin America, and Asia. Uh, It's an interesting model, and Casey and I talk about the practicality of hiring a CEO to implement your or somebody else's business vision. Now, Casey's got some interesting experiences and a few important insights on this matter. Uh, There's a lot of other good ideas in here as well, but I think those need no introduction, so let's get right to the interview. Okay, I'm sitting here with Casey Wolf, founder of Redbrick Ventures and quite a few other companies. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks a lot for uh, making time and choosing to do this. Now, you, you've had kind of an interesting path mm-hmm. in that you have been on the founding team of half a dozen startups, or more, maybe now, right through Redbrick. Uh, I, probably
1: not that many, okay. quite honestly. So I think in terms of being on the founding team, there, there's the first company, which is Walling Case, which is a recruitment company. My initial background comes through recruiting, and I've been doing that for 14, 15 years uh, in Japan. Redbrick Ventures, we set up two and a half years ago, and really, kind of the first idea was I felt like there was a change going on, and there was kind of a, a momentum building, and wanted. To get back, right? Right. So the first idea was, you know, we had a cool space and, all right, let's do a co-working space. But that's really kind of low value add.
0: Well, that's, yeah, the Japan, Tokyo in particular, is, is littered with co-working spaces mm-hmm. and, and accelerators. Um, but I thought, Redbrick, you guys had a very interesting model at first. Um, you, you actually, you and your team came up with the ideas. You did the research to see that it was viable, And then you recruited the team to to run it. In Japan, you guys are the only ones I know that are are doing that successfully. Well, now that Rocket Internet no longer
1: exists in Japan. Right. (laughs) I, I don't know if it's quite successfully, but we've done it. so. You know, just kind of give you to continue with the origination story of it is, you know, I was thinking, okay, here's a co-working space, low value add. Right. So as I I thought about what can we do, how can we get involved in the startup market? And we were feeling all of the energy of companies coming in. We were working with a lot of Japanese startups that wanted to go global at the time. So really wanted to do something in the space. And, you know, okay, as a recruitment firm, we've got this network. We can basically get an introduction to almost everybody. And we, I was starting to meet a lot of kind of 30, 35-year-old Japanese like with top-class credentials, whether it's University of Tokyo, University of Kyoto, not so right. much, maybe more KO and, yeah. and uh, University of Tokyo, a little bit of Waseda in there. Um, McKinsey, BCG, they all wanted to be entrepreneurs, but they weren't taking that last step. And whether it was a legal risk, a social risk, type of thing like that, so I was like, okay, we can fill in this gap here. So it goes to the idea that that you kind of mentioned right there. And actually, through recruitment, one of my clients at the time was Rocket Internet. So I got to understand the inner workings of their business model very, very deeply. right? Right. And what they would do is they'll take somebody very young, who's very smart, whether they're coming from Goldman Sachs or McKinsey type of thing. Maybe they're 26, 27, 28, kind of associate level. Then they'll give them a CEO title uh a very small kind of founding share call them the founder and then just go at speed and, and really scale the startup uh very leanly right so mm-hmm. are they really the founder type of thing like that you know how much is their share percentage so there's questions in it but the model so, so tended you, to
0: work so were you trying to replicate that exactly at first or were you kind of adapt that to japan
1: and that's where the fun came in right <laughs> because uh Basically thinking, okay, here's Rocket Internet. They want to come in Japan. They want to come in Asia. Japan's a very, very special market, right? And I think we can do it more successful. We know how Japan works. We're on the other side of the moat. I think very early on, we didn't want to have his sharp elbows. So, what, what do you mean by that? I think Rocket's a cynical company. I, I think they do a lot to add value in many ways, right? Right. But it's it's the look analytically where's an opportunity. Let's grow with scale. We don't necessarily pay people very well. Mm-hmm. We're going to work people extremely, extremely hard to our vendors or companies that we're dealing with. We don't really treat you
0: with respect, Okay. So, so just there's, ruthless efficiency.
1: I think that's a much more articulate way to say it. <laughs> uh, is what, so very quickly, we wanted to be rocket with a heart. Well, okay. It became the tagline. That, uh, All right, I like we that. To,
0: but what, what was, I mean, like specifically, what were the big things you had to change to to have a heart?
1: Um, I think the biggest part is just how you treat people is the first step of it, right? You, okay. you really care. You So we were doing that. And I think the biggest thing was we wanted these people to be successful. We didn't want a stream of, okay, we're going to close it down after three months or six months type of thing. We really wanted to help people become entrepreneurs. So I think it's just kind of being nice and being accepting and thoughtful and, and working within the Japanese framework. Going back to the earlier question about what we had to change was the shareholding structure. You know, with at least the, what I had seen about Rocket, it's usually 0.5%, 1%, 2% is what they'll give the CEOs or the founders. For the nominal
0: CEO, it's like 0.5%?
1: In the local market. So maybe wow, okay. the global one, I would hope, gets a, right, more, than, more than that, right? Yeah. Um, so they're relatively small shareholdings. So we started out with 15% is what we were doing. And it was kind of the same model, it's a little bit of idea arbitrage, so the thought process was, okay, in the West, in Silicon Valley, mostly it's Silicon Valley, usually it takes a great startup idea, six or seven years to get to Japan. Okay, we can see what's going on in the market, we can do this in six months. So that's the idea arbitrage point of it. Then we had our own development team, at the time it was outsourced developers that we were using in India. And then we had the network to draft in the CEOs or the founders. So we just had a roster of people that were interested in it. Then we test the concepts with them to, to bring in the right person. Then we put in the initial kind of C capital, which is between about 5 and 10 million yen.
0: Okay. And and so how many
1: projects did you
0: run through this?
1: So initially we did three. If I wrap it up at the moment, so Sherebu Kids still exist. The original idea was we were looking at Zulily. And,
0: and this is a... Uh infants and children's clothing mostly foreign brands right e-commerce, the original right? idea wasn't just foreign brands the okay. original idea was okay it's going
1: to be an e-commerce site really focusing on pregnant mothers kids kind of toddlers what hiroshi found who is the ceo and, and the founder and really did become the entrepreneur yeah. of shirepo kids hiroshi was under the kind of the original agreement okay here's 15 percent, and then there's you know, achievements, more percentages come in, type of thing like that. But we just flipped it all around. So he was going to a bunch of VCs, going out into the market, and so were some of the other founders. And they were like, no, we're not. absolutely not interested unless the founder and the CEO has the majority share. And we were being that first rung of it. We had to switch the shareholding agreement, had to switch kind of who was the majority shareholder of this, right? So that was kind of a Kaizen process, right? Trial and error by the time he got to the pitch events, that was all changed around. The model was a little bit more viable at right. that time.
0: So he, at that time, he really was the Absolutely. controlling interest in that company.
1: The real question is within this model: if you're bringing in those CEOs and founders, are they really entrepreneurs? Are they taking the risk type of thing? And it goes back to the definition of the entrepreneur. And- well,
0: yeah, this this is the thing that that jumped out at me from your earlier description: is that you're you're looking at a well-credentialed early mid-career executives or people in consulting who want to dip their toe into entrepreneurship. And it would seem to me that that you would get a lot of people that get a buyer's remorse when they understand how incredibly difficult growing a startup company is. Did you run into much of that?
1: Uh, We did. We had a founder of one of the companies that we kind of initially went through all the agreements and pretty quickly decided, no, this isn't for me. Just got
0: cold feet at the last um, minute?
1: Kind of, right? <laughs> you know, whether it was dealing with us, being more foreigners, type of thing like that. Um, another founder wasn't full-time, was kind of hedging the bets, and it's more, okay, I'll work nights and weekends. And if the entrepreneur has to take the risk, maybe that person didn't take it kind of hmm. fully, right? Yeah. Did, that became a semi-success, the one that was... Uh, you,
0: that's the, which one?
1: So we, we were trying to do a path clone. You know, path of the private social network, right? So right. this is we pivoted, and it became a private social network for pachinko
0: parlors. That's that's a pivot. It's not so much. Private social network for pachinko parlors. <laughs> um, no, we got we got to talk about this. Um, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's not that much of a pivot. Pivot. So the original concept's really there. It's just the target market, right? Uh-huh. So. Pachinko have a lot of restrictions about how they can communicate and how they can market to customers, right? There's a lot of legal restrictions to it. So they were very interested. Okay, here's a social network that's just closed to members that come to our chain of Pachinko parlors or whatever it might be, and we can communicate with them. They're not allowed to do advertising in there because that is illegal, but they can, oh, here's our our new kind of machine that's just come in. It's really loose. Why don't you guys come with But Since
0: we're already registered and part of the family, it's not really advertising.
1: It's not really advertising, but that's when we decided to spin it off, right? And so after oh, okay. it started to get picked up, and we're having more and more kind of pachinko parlors be interested in it. Basically, I'm still a board member of this company, and I'm still involved in this project. That it's too far away from me; I don't want to touch it. So we spun it off. We just gave it to one of the pachinko parlors and exited that one.
0: Oh, okay. Hmm. Huh. That's an interesting one. I didn't. I hadn't heard about that before. Yeah, it's a, just a quiet one. Okay.
1: Can I talk about Justa a little bit? Absolutely. So I, I guess one of the services that we have going right now is Justa, right? And this is along the evolution of Red Brick Ventures, where initially we were trying to create
0: entrepreneurs. And and, and Justa, for, so everyone understands, it's a startup jobs-focused portal. What's the right way of describing it? Uh, Justus is really
1: focused on startups, right? It's for startup hiring and filling that niche. Okay. Now, I think the easiest way to describe it in current terms is a startup job board, right? Okay. Um, they hate it when I say that. Okay.
0: So, what, what should we say?
1: <laughs> so, it's really focusing on that, and it's billing. Hiring for startups is incredibly hard, right? So their their personal network is usually where the hiring comes from, but it runs out pretty quickly after the third, fourth person by chance. Mm -hmm. Unless somebody's got a lot of energy and they're out meeting everybody that they possibly can. But what we found is it's a lot bigger than we expected it to be. So I think at this moment, there's like 95 startups on there and some 270 jobs. And it hasn't even come
0: out of beta yet. Just as one of, those place, one of the first places I tell people to look when I've got inquiries from overseas about, you know, I'm, I want to join a startup in Japan. I'm like, okay, go here. Uh,
1: <laughs> look yeah, around. <laughs> uh, I think it's great. It's fully bilingual, right? It's really seamless. And we have our first hires going on. We need a better tracking system on the backside. But we know of three or four success cases where it's actually happened and People got these hires for free. Um, so we're into thousands of candidates uh, already over there, new startups that we've never heard of. Sign up. And given your
0: background and expertise, that's a real natural fit for you. On It's that intersection, right, between startups and recruiting. And from my experience, the, the, the people who really hit the ball out of the park are the ones that find that unique overlap of like three particular skills they're good at. Mm-hmm. And, and this really looks like one of those because it really is well done. Well, thank you very much. So you know, when
1: I was just first starting out becoming an entrepreneur, it, it was in like um, fast company. There were It was like a BCG matrix, you know, one of those squares that you have type of thing. Oh, yes. And the most successful square you have is if you're in a growing market and you know that market, then your chance of success is like 85%. Um, or I, I'm throwing numbers in there, right, but, but it's much more higher. It's like the dark green or, or type of thing. And if the market's not growing and you don't know anything about the market, your worst chance of success, right? Mm-hmm. So... I think the startup market here is growing. We know recruitment, so we've positioned ourselves in the right square. Okay. And then from now on is we'll be doing two things. We'll be creating more of our own internal red brick services that are human capital related. Then the other side is still once a year, we want
0: to help create those entrepreneurs and and really go back to do that. Well, listen, one of the things we we absolutely have to talk about now, you have just finished writing a book about entrepreneurship in Japan. You've gone around... um, Doing something very similar to what I'm doing is yeah, just a different medium. Yeah, Uh, talking to a lot of of successful startup founders about their story, their journey, their advice. I know you've published in Japanese. Do you have a do you know when when is the book coming out in English? And do you have a working title for it yet? Um, It should be published in February 21st in both Japanese and English.
1: Uh, It'll be on Amazon Japan. Uh, if you're in Japan, you can buy it in major bookstores like Maruzen and Kinokuniya. Uh, the working title in English is, we're still working on it, but... Um, Actually, that's <laughs> not a bad title. <laughs> <laughs> it, could be, it could be a startup title, right? But it, it's really the founding stories of, 20 founding stories of, of Japanese entrepreneurs and how they're going to kind of lead the entrepreneurial
0: future of Japan. So, all right. And we'll have links to the Amazon, we'll have links to the book and right, everything we'll up on the so. website. Please. So because I'm far too lazy to actually read a book, what are the common traits among successful Japanese founders?
1: It's a tough question. I, I, I think the biggest one is just passion, right? It, yeah. It's a real passion for doing it. Being an entrepreneur and doing a startup is really tough. You get a lot of no's. You get a lot of people that don't believe in you. Things fall apart. Key people leave. How do you exist? How do you go on? Maybe funding doesn't work out. And you've got to have something deep.
0: To drive you through them. Well, passion is one of those things that I've always been skeptical of. I mean, it's true, you need passion, but it's easy to be passionate about something you're successful that you're succeeding at or you've already succeeded at. Is there anything you can look at that struck you as maybe either uniquely Japanese or surprisingly common among all these successful founders in Japan?
1: I think they fell into two patterns. Okay. Is you had your product-centered entrepreneurs where it was a personal product uh, or a personal problem that they were solving and you're creating a product from that. And that's where the passion derives, right? And keeping the team small. And there was a large group. That were about the product and service, and they're willing to separate themselves from that product and service when they can no longer grow it, or if they'll have a better home, you know, in a different company type of thing, then I think the uniquely Japanese part of it is the Keisha. There's a certain set within the 20 kind of founding companies or, or founders that I spoke with that wanted to be Keisha, mm-hmm. and it's about leading a company and being...
0: Well, you have to explain Keisha. Most of our listeners don't speak Japanese.
1: Let's see if I can do it justice. I'll probably need your help. But uh, it's a business owner and a business executive is a simple one. But the real wording of it, it's a weight and a responsibility. Your incentives are not to maximize profits in Japan. Your incentive is to create an organization. And the larger the organization you have, the better. And there's a lot of social status equated with that. And Keisha means I have responsibility for all these people Under my watch, under my
0: wing type of thing. Well, and another thing is, and which I think ties directly with that, is in Japan, people are sort of CEO for life. Yes. People start a company expecting to die as the founder of that company, which is kind of unhealthy in an entrepreneurial context. Mm -hmm. But did you find like a a large percentage of these, these successful founders still had that Desire to keep ownership of their company forever.
1: I think there's a certain group, right, that yeah. fall into the Kesha side of it. I think they're still young and they're still on the upward trajectory, so it's not like the dying grips. I'm just holding on because this is this is my baby or this is my self identity. Oh, that's what it turns into, it. <laughs> or, or my family <laughs> identity. But
0: there's a determination to grow it. Did you see any differences between the generations? The the young successful entrepreneurs versus the the guys in their 50s?
1: Um, Actually, there was only one group that I interviewed that was in their 50s. Uh, I think there's a couple in their early 40s, then most are in their early 30s, and then there's a few 20-year-olds type of thing. So it's mostly the younger generation that will be the future kind of entrepreneurs that want to change Japan. Okay. So if I look at just the digital garage, it's they built up that company and, and took a risk when, I guess it wasn't as cool to be an entrepreneur. There wasn't the infrastructure. It was really when the internet was starting. Yeah, they were yeah, founded back
0: in ninety seven, six something like that. Pretty early on. I think might. You used to work there, right? Yeah. I, they 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 <laughs> yeah. bought one of my old companies. <laughs> okay, that so, was much later yeah. though.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so they were pioneering the internet in Japan at that time. Now I think there's a story that really stands out from hayashi-san is about taking i was asking him about taking venture capital it was like venture capital didn't exist back then yeah it was more if you want venture capital okay i can have like a big japanese company say it's venture capital but they still want all the guarantees of a loan so he's like i got a venture capital offer they wanted me to sign about my house as being liability for this venture capital and basically he said fuck you yeah, uh, type thing, and that became his motivation in some part
0: to, to grow things. Well, that's that's something that's only changed fairly recently. I, I still talk to young founders, you know, entrepreneurs who will who will occasionally have a VC ask them to sign for the loan or to guarantee their investment. It, it's rare, but it still happens. Mm. So
1: I think you know, still on that spectrum of becoming more sophisticated about the venture capital funding, Japan still has. Quite a long way to go about that.
0: It, it is interesting how it's changed because, for example, when um, Hayashi-san was out trying to raise capital, I mean, there were gr- groups like Jafco
1: mm. have been
0: around forever, but they were really more mezzanine financing. Mm. And now there is a ridiculous amount of seed financing available. I think there's more seed than there is venture. Uh, yes. Yeah, it kind a, of feels like that. Yeah. There, there's a real Series A crunch here in Japan mm. now. Um, both of us spend an inordinate amount of our time talking to Japanese entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in your opinion, what do you think Japanese founders are good at? What are they weak at? We're painting with broad brushes here.
1: This is a very broad brush. Yeah.
0: Um, and we'll drill down later. So,
1: I think Japanese entrepreneurs don't care. They just really don't care about the consequences, right? Because there is no you know, celebration of failure here. For the most part. Society-wise, it doesn't exist. Yeah, um, Bankruptcy laws are still ridiculous that they can recover 96% of whatever's owned to the creditors when a company goes bankrupt. So it's the highest in the world. So for Japanese society being so homogenous and kind of move as a group uh, very broadly, so for these people to become entrepreneurs, they're already breaking every kind of social rule that exists, right? Right. Um, and it's changed recently, but, you know, if you went bankrupt in Japan, they could take everything from you. Yeah, right? well,
0: and, and even the, the corporate shield in Japan is much looser, even mm-hmm. if you're a CEO. and I mean, they can still theoretically come after your the president's assets.
1: They, they've changed the law, I think it was last year, oh. where it's it's kind of vaguely worded where we can only take enough, but we have to leave you with a livable lifestyle or something <laughs> like that, right?
0: But, How reassuring.
1: So I think Japanese entrepreneurs is... They're willing to be themselves. Like They're very much themselves for the people that I interviewed, right? And they're comfortable in their skin.
0: And that, that's interesting because I see something as kind of a contradiction here because the people you would normally think would fit that mold would be kind of the outsiders, the artists, the people who who didn't have another option, right? Mm. But a lot of the entrepreneurs, a lot of the founders I meet are from... Top schools. They're from Ko in particular. Um, a few I'm from todai. a few, well, yeah. a few yeah. from todai. Yeah. a lot from Waasa. Yeah. So the, these are people with great career options, and they're still deciding to start up a, a company. So what, when you say they, they don't care, what, what do you think is is making them take that gamble?
1: And, and that's part of what I covered in the book. And, and really, for me, kind of as a recruiter, my personal passions is the psychology of it, right? And what is the motivation and why did you do this and, and kind of exploring the past and the backgrounds. And actually, Kimura-san of Gunosi who, who started up a, an ad tech company called Atlantis, he sold it a degree uh, for $26 million and was kind of one of the biggest exits uh, at the time. He did it in a year after getting, what, 3.5 million yen in funding. Yeah. Um, he's from Todai, so he's from the University of, of Tokyo. And kind of his one of his comments was that there still are not... Enough of the most top class people in Japan coming to startups. All his classmates at Todai, many of them don't come. People still go into big companies, people still choose that pathway. So, why did this kind of subset decide to do it? I think it's really interesting and it really goes back to that idea of do I want to be a keisha? So, some of them have an entrepreneurial influence. In their life, whether it was a grandfather or an uncle or a father, and they grew up in a household. So they had a role model. Exactly. Yeah. And the other ones were, became more product-based, but again, they probably did a startup in college type of thing. Like one of their friends, usually they weren't the original ones um, to say, here's my startup idea, let's do it. But one of their friends invited them in college or, or right after, why don't you get involved and do this? And then they found their own personal kind of project that they wanted on that they made successful. Hmm.
0: Okay, let's talk about the, the overall state of startups in Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've both been in, in this game for quite a while, and things have been getting so much better. <laughs> but if you had to put your finger on one or two things that, that had to change to, to really accelerate the growth of startups, what, what do you think really needs to change? What do you think needs to be improved here in Japan?
1: Um, I think the biggest thing is you just need sheer numbers. Right. You just need a lot more numbers of startups, right? So how do you get more people to, to influence it? So you want more people to be exposed to startups, You know, do an internship at a startup in college, or, or they join one early in their career, right. and they're more likely to become founders later on. And it's interesting through the book is people took two sides of employees owning shares of their companies, and most of the startup founders and employees should not own shares, Right. It's so most said employees should not own shares. For the majority said it and many said it very strongly.
0: Huh. Now that's that's a very different model than you see in, in the US and Europe. So these, these firms were tightly held by the founder or by the founder and his investors? Who owned the shares?
1: Primarily the founder. And I think venture capital in Japan wants a single founder right. to own the overwhelming majority of the share, not a group of co founders for the most part. Generally one guy. they want one guy where they can see and be tangible and be responsible for everything. But beyond that, there are a lot of cases where co-founders might own relatively equal shares type of situation. So,
0: so what was the logic behind um, not giving employees options or, or shares? Because you can
1: never get those back. And it's so hard to get it back and it goes back to, to control. Um, huh. But then on the converse side, and this goes back to, I think, the the original question, is If you give more employees and startup shares and they take those shares and they move away and they still get the return from it, they're going to probably use it to angel invest or start up their own company and that money has to flow more, right? Sure. So there's getting to be more exits now and some of the people that have exits, most of them are
0: becoming angel investors to a certain degree, right? Well, I think that is one of the most positive trends we've seen is that I think right now I think is the first generation of successful startup founders that are turning around and investing in the next generation mm. that that really seems to be new now
1: I think that the scale is' it's, it's really kind of almost a pyramid right It's numbers that are coming uh, through doing these these stories. there was like net age back in the day right. there was one or two or three companies mm-hmm. where the founder who had a, an exit, usually an IPO at that time, was going back and you know investing angels to startups. And that this becomes a second generation that is becoming more successful. Now they're turning back into it. So the pyramid, the base of the pyramid steadily getting a little bit wider in terms of the scope of it. I think probably the biggest thing that I'd love to see change is more venture capital. Actually, the people running in, in the investors having been ex-entrepreneurs themselves. I think yeah, still that, is, that is independent corporate VC. There
0: are very few, other than the angels you, you mentioned, most VCs are dominated by finance guys. Yeah, it's very smart guys. Extremely. Guys from, you know, top school MBAs. But actually getting back to the control idea, was the desire for control, I mean, this is, this is something that runs deep in Japanese society. Mm. So from the founders you, you spoke to, How much of that desire for control was uh, sort of an instinctive cultural desire? And how much do you think really played out strategically? I think most of it is cultural.
1: I I think it's probably 90% cultural. And if I guess uh, the meaning of how did it play out strategically is did somebody kind of lose control and they felt the personal pain
0: by it? So they never want to experience that again. Or or... did they lose good employees because they felt like they weren't part of the team I don't think that really happens in Japanese startups.
1: And they're going back to that VC one one man in control. There's still an idea in kind of Japanese business generally, and and startups especially in particular, is you have the charisma president, the charisma shacho. Right. right? And this is one guy, and this is our, our visionary leader that leads us all to greatness. And there's a lot of people helping that person go along and in many startups they're underpaid right, certainly yeah. that is the nature of a startup in, in some ways but even as the venture grows maybe they could
0: add some of those profits or, or some of that back in, into the pay as well so is that something that has changed with the age of the entrepreneurs or are some of the younger guys also very much wanting to stay in control and not give their shares up?
1: I think it's certainly changing, right? I think there's a generational change. And as you have more exits and the market itself becomes liquid, money in and money out type of thing like that, um, the idea of control is not necessarily as strong, right? Right. Especially for the product-inspired engineers, for uh, entrepreneurs, for the entrepreneurs that are still about the K-A show or, or being that responsible kind of President type of thing, then obviously controls a, a different aspect.
0: Right. I, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Let's um, let's end this on a high note. because okay. We talked about like I thought it was what, all high. <laughs> yeah, it should be. But we've talked about like what the Japanese market needs to do and what needs to be improved. What do you think is the the single most positive trend that that you see in the market today for startups? I
1: think there's so many things going right.
0: You can give me a couple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's more exits, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot more exits, and the exits are getting you know 30000000 dollars is kind of not becoming unusual, and it's happening. The, the funding's f- getting bigger. There's a lot more angel investment out there. That's there's
0: a lot more M&A exits than there used to be. And didn't like three years ago, it was unheard of. I think it's a lot of the new companies, new mm-hmm. newly IPO'd companies, are very acquisitive. Mm-hmm. So the Fujitsu's and the NEC's. It's the DNAs and grease and rocket right. ends and, exactly. and soft banks, to a certain degree. And so, so that might be, I think that is going to be a continuing trend.
1: Absolutely. And then you have the know-how. So people that have built it from zero to one have the successful exit and can turn around and either be a mentor or do the next one. All the people that were employed there, were, even from the intern, they had a great opportunity. in And, and it hopefully more and more thing. of
0: those guys have stock options and they can all go out well, and start uh, up uh, new uh, companies. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Well, it's a lot to look forward to in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I think right.
0: it'll be good. Well, Casey, this has been great. Oh, thank thank you thanks so much a lot much for sitting with in. me. And we're back. Now, Casey's points on the cult of the founder that exists in Japan were interesting. And it was particularly fascinating to learn how many founders did not want to give their employees equity, even today. Now, in my experience, this is changing as more and more companies are founded by teams rather than individuals. But the need for control, or perhaps more accurately, the need for the illusion of control, runs very deep in Japanese society and business culture. And also, the question of whether entrepreneurship and building a startup can be systematized is an interesting one. I think it's clear that to some degree it can. On one side, we have people like Steve Blank, who are finding repeatable patterns abstractions, and blueprints. And on the other side, there are companies like Rocket Internet who are trying to develop genuine startup factories. And there are many, many companies like Rocket that clone American startups. Rocket's just far and away the most successful and metrics-driven of them. But Casey's point was an interesting one, that in Japan, outside investors and employees themselves we were highly skeptical of the disposable company and employee model of Rocket. But time will tell if those VCs are simply behind the times or if their views are based on the reality of the commitment required to succeed in the Japanese market. If you want to see the links and resources that Casey and I talked about during the interview or to get in touch, go to Disrupting Japan slash show zero thirteen. And you'll find all of that and more in the resources section of the post. And if you have something to say about startup clones, startup jobs, or Japanese startups in general, leave a comment and let us know what you think. If you have some ideas on how to improve the show or know someone we should be talking to, send us an email at feedback at disruptingjapan.com. But most of all, thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting the show and letting people interested in Japanese startups know about disrupting Japan. This is Tim Romero, and thanks for listening.